Uh, many of us are uh, looking forward to warmer weather and uh, nice uh, days uh, sitting out in the yard. One of the things we like to do, uh, especially in the early summer, is to watch the fireflies. In the uh, early evening, as darkness is coming over the land, you may not actually realize that what seems like a magical scene, though, for so many of us, is often a cruel game of enticement and destruction. Because there are different species of fireflies that are out there, And um, they attract one another of their own kind by various sequencing of their lights. There might be four long flashes with a short flash or maybe four short flashes with a long flash. All of that intended to to communicate to others that they are uh, looking for mating opportunities and the right person or the right insect, you might say, along the way. But in the dark of the night, these insects make a uh, tragic discovery that there are predatory beetles who actually learn the patterns of light that fireflies are looking for and mimic those patterns, drawing their prey to them. And when they arrive, hoping for a sexual encounter... They find literally the jaws of death. That natural phenomenon gives really a pointed illustration of what's happening around us every day. Men and women are being enticed and entangled and trapped really in sexual temptation and sexual immorality incessantly. Like fireflies following what they believe are the flashing signals to their happiness... Men and women are following sexual desires wherever they might lead until they find themselves at the end of their road actually being devoured by the very thing that they thought would bring them joy and happiness and delight. We live in a world that's always flashing us false signals when it comes to the actual realities of sexual encounter. We live in a world that believes that it can have all of the satisfaction of sexuality without any of the restraint in a world that has really cast off all restraint and is living in what it believes is finally the age of sexual freedom. An age when all the prudish and austere standards of outdated morality are finally gone and people believe that they ought to be able to pursue whatever kind of activity, indecent or degenerate as it might be, whatever kind of lifestyle they want without any reason or any cause of shame. In fact, if you bring up any of those supposed outdated standards, you're the one who is shamed, imposing what they believe unjustly is your own personal standards of morality on them. Of course, this kind of society has bred anything but freedom. In fact, it's produced bondage upon bondage, slavery and captivity, bringing men and women eventually into death and despair and the rapid deterioration of society all around us. The past few months really have been uh, one of the best illustrations of that. We're in the midst of what is being called the Me Too movement, where millions of people 
Now both women and men are stepping forward to tell the story of sexual abuse and exploitation that's been taking place behind the scenes for decades, if not longer. And we're learning that at seemingly every institution and every place of business, at almost every level, a sexually charged culture has cultivated an atmosphere where there is constant shaming and fear and dread and deceit and shame going on behind closed doors and sometimes not even behind closed doors. And the very society that is now trying to express its outrage about all of this abuse and manipulation is at the same time spending hundreds of millions of dollars each year fueling an entertainment industry that sells them this very product. Most recently, a book trilogy known as Fifty Shades of Grey, written by a a woman in England, Erica Mitchell, glorifies sexual bondage, abuse, and exploitation. It has earned her uh, more than $100 million in sales, In fact, it surpassed Harry Potter as the fastest-selling paperback of all time. And in the three film adaptations that have been produced at the box office, it has yielded $1.2 billion. And yet it's become known popularly as mommy porn because it has really captivated more than anyone else the females in our culture. And a whole slew of researchers are trying to determine why these things have become so popular, particularly with women, who, as we said, are at the same time are expressing their outrage at being objects of such abuse. And this is just one of many popular books in a crowded field of erotic novels and films that are produced every year, not to mention all of the TV programs that are pumped across our screens and produced ad nauseum. And of course, it is just really the newest thing against a dark, dark cloud of porn that has enveloped our nation for decades now, a $13 billion porn industry. Covenant Eyes website reports that 70% of men and 32% of women view porn multiple times each week, one in five mobile searches we're told, are for pornographic material. And there are some 45,000 websites explicitly devoted to this industry. 50% of men and 20% of women claim that they're addicted to this. And 71% of pornographic activity is viewed by teens. And the obvious effect of this is the breakdown of marriage, the breakdown of relationship, the breakdown of desire between couples and most certainly the breakdown of trust. But researchers are just now beginning to understand the impact of this on on the brains of people and on society. They have noted the significant link between depression and emotional numbness that comes from those who regularly view pornography. They have noted the overall social anxiety it produces and a general lack of confidence, particularly in males who are Uh, themselves addicted to this. 
It negatively affects concentration, has been linked with a ADHD label, and produces what researchers simply call brain fog and an overall lack of motivation in life. And all of this sort of reflective of our society, which believes that they are embarking on an era of sexual freedom. In fact, it's bondage. Bondage in a debilitating and, and intense way. And there's even other kinds of bondage. It's leading to a spike in sexually transmitted diseases. The CDC estimated recently that 20 million people each year are contracting new sexually transmitted diseases. Resulting in an increase each year of $16 billion in the over, overall health care cost in our nation. Leading to a kind of economic bondage where people are buried now under mountains of medical bills trying to treat these sexually transmitted diseases for the remainder of their life. And yet a culture that continues to think it's in freedom where cohabitation and uh, sexual exploration are normal and healthy It's now reported that three of four women in the U.S. have lived with a partner without being married before the age of 30. Two-thirds of those aged 15 to 19 believe that cohabitation is actually a good idea. Our culture has adopted this belief that this kind of exploration is actually better than traditional abstinence until marriage with crude analogies like uh, that of taking a car for a test drive. They say you need to try it before you buy it. Which makes good sense with cars since they're not living beings made in the image of God, but people aren't made out of steel and plastic and rubber. The analogy breaks down because when the test driver walks away from his car, the car is not left with psychological damage for the rest of his life. But studies of cohabitation show that this is not healthy. It's not good. A recent study in American College of Pediatricians shows that rather than serving as a stepping stone to a healthy marriage, living together before marriage in cohabitation makes couples twice as likely to break up and to divorce if they do marry. Now, in the midst of all this, Christians are surrounded with messages and, uh, and images and uh, a force of culture that is trying to impose these ideas on you. And they seemingly are struggling to maintain clarity when it comes to all these things, to clearly understand what the biblical ethic on sexual morality is, or if they if they do understand it, at least to stand up for it. They're uncertain sometimes if traditional understandings of marriage and sexuality really even apply in a digital age, in an age where standards are sliding all the time, and they wonder whether or not what the Bible teaches is really even practical anymore, or if it's maybe a bit outdated. When the culture around them is constantly pumping Images glorifying extramarital sex and the general acceptance of almost any kind of lifestyle, Christians are adopting the mentality that sexual immorality may not be all that bad. 
I mean, as long as you maintain a high marriage ethic, as long as you're eventually planning or intending to do that, as long as you basically believe in procreation and, and all those traditional things, is it really that wrong? Is it really that hurtful if you engage here and there with a little pornography or, or even experiment some sexually? When you add to that the fact that parents, even Christian churches, struggle to have a conversation with their kids about sexuality. Few of them talk to their kids at all, and if they do, it's such an uncomfortable subject they normally give way to some sort of crude and unseemly humor to get out of it. What few hours you may spend talking to your children about these issues ends up being dwarfed by the thousands of hours they sit watching images, sexually explicit images on a screen, or reading about it in social media, or hearing about it from their friends, or even from their teachers. The church does very little to address it. Some people, in fact, find it inappropriate. They would think a sermon like this should never be preached in a public venue. Uh, They have this image this notion that somehow exposing their children to this kind of a talk would do some sort of damage to them and they want to preserve the innocence they perceive to be there with their children and 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 maybe somewhere down the road they will have a chance to sort all these things out and yet research shows that 70 percent of your children will stumble upon pornographic material on digital devices by the time they are 12 nearly all of them will do something to erase their digital footprint. Erasing their memory, um, using special browsers or whatever it is to get around being discovered. In fact, nearly one in ten children under the age of 18 in our country sends a sexually explicit image of themselves to friends. Phenomenon known as sexting. Some people wonder whether or not it's appropriate for a church to talk about these kinds of things in a public way. I would say if people are not going to hear the message of the scripture on sexuality from the church, where are they going to hear it? If the church doesn't address these things, we will all sit by and continue to watch a culture get plunged deeper and deeper into the, 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 the void, the darkness of this bondage that's going around all the time around us. Some people wonder, in fact, whether or not preaching about it does any good, or some people even question whether or not the Bible is even relevant in the kind of age that we live in. They assume that the temptations we face today are too prevalent, too strong to be adequately addressed by Scripture, that we've kind of crossed over into a new era that has never been seen before, and, and really goes outside of the boundaries that could really perhaps been, have been anticipated by, uh, by the, the, the biblical writers. They argue that um, the temptations we face are, are too strong for any of the resources maybe that the Scripture gives to us. Or even worse, they have accepted the cultural definitions of sexuality. They reject the idea that sex is sacred or it ought to be thought of as a respected gift that we give only to one person for our entire life. 
Or people accept the idea that as long as you protect yourself against disease and pregnancy, sex outside of marriage does very little damage to the people who are involved. Ignoring all the social baggage that people carry with them the rest of their lives. They try to pretend that God hasn't created them the way He's created them. Intending them for a relationship of monogamy, one man and one woman for life. See, against all of these lies, really, that come out of culture, you have this compelling message from God that goes all the way back to the very beginning of Scripture. All the way back, really, before even sin entered into the world, where God created marriage as something to be enjoyed between a man and a woman that could be enjoyed without any of the corruptions of the fall, could be enjoyed without any of the corruptions of illicit desire. He gave us marriage and sexuality within marriage as a gift. And even after that, even after the corruptions of, uh, of the Garden of Eden and everything that came with it, and we begin reading the early books, early chapters of the book of, uh, of Genesis, and we see how this wonderful design of God is plunged into chaos, widespread chaos and, and um, perversion from the very beginning. Even after all of that, we're still given this idea, this hope that God's plan is still the right plan. God's plan is still that we would enjoy sexuality within the boundaries He set from the very beginning. The Bible is crystal clear on this. We shouldn't imagine that its commands or its standards are somehow naive or outdated or modern society has embraced a, such a more open sexual ethic that we've moved beyond those things and we shouldn't even imagine that somehow we have entered into a, an era which is unlike any others and that the temptations we face can no longer be adequately dealt with with, with a sort of biblical platitudes as you might imagine them to be. In fact, when you come to the New Testament and do a little bit of background study, what you realize is that the broader Greek and Roman culture was as depraved, if not more, than the one in which we're living. They accepted and in fact promoted sexual immorality broadly. And Christians in that era were surrounded as much by a decadent culture as any in our own day, and it had poisoned their view of sexuality as much as it does anyone today. And the evidence of it is all over, if you just read the ancient literature, uh, standards of sexual uh, chastity are rarely, if ever, upheld by ancient writers, and they consistently magnify and promote the use of concubines and prostitutes and, and even uh, homosexual relationships. Uh, freely. And even beyond that, there's evidence even in the New Testament that this, this was the society in which Christians found themselves. If you read, for example, in the book of Corinth, Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6 and reminds them. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, 
nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. This was a church that was made up of ex-fornicators, ex-idolaters, ex-thieves, ex-adulterers, ex-homosexuals, ex-drunkards. This was the New Testament church. They, they all came out of this kind of lifestyle. This was what surrounded them at all sides. Everett Ferguson, in his book on New Testament backgrounds, writes, uh, Paul's judgment, he says, on Gentile morality in Genesis 1.18 finds considerable confirmation in other sources of the time. Both Jewish and Christian writers agreed that the Greco-Roman world was characterized by moral corruption. The numerous words in the Greek language for sexual relations suggest that there was a preoccupation with this aspect of life. Homosexuality was common, Result was a common result in Greek society which considered the noblest form of love to be friendship between men. Some of the greatest names in Greek philosophy regarded it as not inferior to heterosexual love, but it was practiced primarily among males between early teens and early 20s. All kinds of immoralities were associated with the gods. Not only was prostitution a recognized institution, but throughout through the influence of the fertility cults in Asia Minor, Syria, and Phoenicia, it became a part of the religious rites of temples all around. Thus, there were 1,000 sacred prostitutes at the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth. Greek language indeed had a lot of words, as he says, for sexuality. There is, of course, the broad word porne, which basically means to purchase, and it referred to someone that could be purchased like a harlot or a prostitute, and and derivatives of that describe the, the uh, industry, if you will, of prostitution. Pornace came to mean fornication in general, sexual sin outside of, of marriage. The word moikos, which is the word for adulterer, specifically referred to the sin of, uh, of sexual activity with a married person. Really the only sin that was legally banned in the ancient world. You were encouraged to have uh, sexual relations with anyone you wanted except for someone who had devoted themselves to marriage because they were now seen under the primary purpose of, of producing offspring and you didn't want to corrupt that process. In fact, marriage was held in such low esteem that in the year 14 AD, the emperor of Rome had to adopt certain stringent standards to encourage people to actually settle down and have children. He actually came up with a law which, which uh, bound people from receiving their inheritance unless they had given uh, uh, birth or had, had, uh, had with some woman a certain number of children. They had to meet a quota on children because no one really wanted marriage. No one really wanted to settle down. They just wanted to enjoy their sexual liberties. You had other words. Hetari, which was a, a word for a mistress whose simple purpose was to be sort of a concubine for men who wanted that uh, kind of activity. Arsana koitas is the word for 
homosexual love, and Amalekasher was one who was actually the passive partner in this sexual relationship. They came up with unique terminology for each person who participated in that. And then the word Malachi, which was a sex slave, which was a, a big part of the slave industry of the day. This was life in the first century. This was what people lived in and came out of. This is what they were used to. It was rampant. It was a no-shame culture. You could see it all over the place. You could go to the temple and there were prostitutes who were doing their work there. You could walk through the streets and people would be engaging in erotic rituals all the time. In some cities of the ancient Greek world, public brothels were established and prices were actually regulated by the government. And they would employ men and women who would stand around unclothed all day long in order to lure people into the doorways. It was decadent. It was degraded. Rampant. And chastity was anything except celebrated. And so Paul writes to people in this culture, in a sex-saturated culture. And he doesn't budge one bit on exactly what God expects from you. In fact, you'll see here in our text, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says this, Finally, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus That as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Paul is introducing to them this This teaching, which he says he had given them from the very beginning. In fact, he told them that this is how they are supposed to walk and how they are supposed to please God. This is is crystal clear. It doesn't matter what's going on in the culture surrounding you. It doesn't matter what the temptations are. It doesn't matter what's on display in the streets and byways, in the temples. It doesn't matter what kind of family, what kind of upbringing, what kind of way you might have been conditioned in your past. It doesn't matter. God's will and God's standard were crystal clear. He says His will is always that you abstain from sexual immorality in all of its forms. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to unpack this section running from verse 1 all the way down through verse 8 to better understand God's design for our sexual purity. Or as I've titled it, a, a, a purity that pleases God a purity that pleases God. We want to understand exactly what God's will is for our lives in this area and how it is we're to go about pursuing it. And this is a passage that as well as anywhere you'll find in Scripture equips us to be able to do that, to be able to walk in purity. It gives us the tools to battle temptation, to find contentment and satisfaction with God's design and God's plan for sexual purity. And Paul gives us in these 
eight verses, really four basic principles to protect our purity or four basic principles we might even say to maintain our purity. And we'll begin this week just with the first one. It's probably the most basic one out of them all. And it's this, Paul understands that if we're going to maintain and we're going to protect our purity, that purity is going to come by continuous instruction. Purity is going to come by continuous instruction. So what he's saying in the first two verses, brothers, we ask and urge you that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul is making reference of what he taught them when he was with them in his brief time for three or four months when he was in Thessalonica from the very beginning He gave them very clear instructions, instructions which he says in verse 2, were given through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has no doubt that what he gave them was inspired and authoritative under the gospel of Christ. It wasn't his own prudish opinion. It wasn't his own sort of conservative approach. It wasn't his take on the best way to pursue happiness. This was the Lord's will. And he begins in this section, sort of the, it says finally, but really these are the remaining things that he has to say after he's kind of recounted the history in the first three chapters of of his uh, departure from them. He now transitions to this series of exhortations in chapter 4 and 5. And he begins at the very uh, first part of these chapters by reminding them that all of this is what he previously taught them. He even expresses his confidence that they remember it. He doesn't think that they've forgotten it. He doesn't even suggest they don't understand it. He says they're even walking in it. But there's a need, he says... For you to press forward, to, you ex- to, to excel in this kind of walk more and more. See, Paul understood that everything that he taught them about sanctification, but particularly even in this area, is going to require consistent reminders and ongoing incessant effort. Paul has given them the basics of discipleship, but he understands that you have to always lay the foundation of the basics again and again and again. In fact, he, he's going he's to say this about a number of things as you go through chapters 4 and 5, several references to what he previously taught. You have the one here in verse 1, what they had received from us, he says, just as you're doing... Uh, just that you might do it all the more. Verse 2, you know the instructions we gave you. Then again, down in verse 6, he mentions what we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you about sexual immorality. And then down in verse 9, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you have been taught by God in the matter of love for one another. And then down in verse 10, for indeed... That is what you are doing. And again, we urge you, brothers, to do it more and more. Keep pressing ahead. You can't settle in on where you have been in the past. 
Or down in chapter 5, verse 1, now concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need for anyone to write to you. Or in verse 2, you yourselves are fully aware. Or down even verse 11 of chapter 5, he he reminds them to encourage one another just as you're also doing. So what Paul's doing in this entire section, he isn't really giving them a lot of new stuff. He's just teaching them and reminding him of the same things he had already taught them. In fact, back in chapter 3, you may remember in verse 9 and 10, Paul talks about how, how he wanted to come and see them, particularly in verse 10. He says, we pray earnestly night and day that we might see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may God, our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. That He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Paul was confident that these believers had been taught and they had been taught well. He was confident that they were faithful to what they had been taught, and yet he recognized that there was a need to be reminded, to be taught again and again and again. It's one of the reasons why you come here week in and week out, and and I'm not necessarily giving you anything new or profound, but one of the jobs of a pastor and one of the jobs of a shepherd is to simply urge you again and again and again to the things that you already know. You may remember this out of Peter, when Peter says this over in 2 Peter chapter 1. He talks about how His divine power has granted to us things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He's granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in this world because of sinful desire. He says, for this reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. If these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says down in verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it's right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will come soon, as the Lord Jesus has made clear to me. Peter's like, look, as long as I'm around, I'm just going to keep telling you. The same things I've already told you, the same things I'm confident you already know, I'm going to keep telling you so that you press forward more and more and more into the virtues that you already know. Or Paul's telling the Thessalonians the same thing. You need to hear God's word on this issue. You need to hear these truths on this issue. First of all, because there's a constant encroachment of the culture around you. That there's this perverse uh, degradation around you, a constant temptation for you to rationalize and to justify all kinds of behavior under the label of 
of uh, modern culture or even on the label of love. It was uh, Fletcher who said in his, what, uh, 1966 work, Situation Ethics, that you should hold to biblical ethics if you can. But if at any time they come in conflict with what you determine to be love, you may set them aside. That was from a supposedly Christian author. And that has become the mantra of the day. As people justify all the time their plunge into extramarital affairs or premarital fornication. Or sometimes even they justify their own, uh, their own indulgence in pornographic material because of what they perceive to be an absence of love in their relationships. And they justify all the time these things in their life and are neglectful of the Word of God. Like Paul tells of the Roman society in Romans chapter 1, a society that was sliding itself into degradation. He says, although they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You're in a society that wants to affirm your every immoral impulse. It wants to encourage it. I was amazed even reading this week uh, through uh, this uh, reviews of this, um, this movie, Fifty Shades of Grey. One author wrote a, an entire piece defending how she can engage in her own indulgences in watching this film while at the same time try to justify that it's wrong for anyone to actually do this in real life. And I was trying to just imagine the rationalization that must be going on in her mind to suggest that she could expose herself to these novels or these books and be unaffected by it in the long run. This is a society that is constantly prodding you and provoking you and pushing you to compromise in your purity, to accept the standards, to accept as normal what is all around you. And so there's a need for you to go with constant reminders, to hear these principles taught again and again and again. And even though Paul felt like these Thessalonians were still walking in purity, he wanted to remind them. He wanted to stir them up. He understood that this call to purity is a constant call. He understood that the battle is incessant, that it will never go away. And so really this is the, the other reason, not only because there's the constant encroachment of culture, but because the pathway to purity is an everyday pathway. It's perhaps one of the greatest sources of frustration and disappointment for people, especially as they begin their Christian walk, when they realize that there's no silver bullet, that there's nothing that that any pastor or any Christian leader or any parent or any advisor is going to be able to, to tell them that's ultimately going to take away the temptations. 
that, that every day when they wake up and every time when they have the option, they're going to have to make a decision to crucify themselves, to express faith in God, to find their joy and their satisfaction in Him. They want to think that there's some book out there that's going to give them finally the, the secret or they want to believe that they're going to have some conversation with some godly or spiritual saint who's suddenly going to make it all go away. That it won't be a struggle. That they won't have to fight so hard to die to themselves anymore. But Paul knew better. He understood that this pathway to purity needs constant reminders. You cannot just hear the Word of God once or twice. You cannot just read one book and think that you're done with the issue. You need to be reminded again and again and again. And so Paul understands the need for vigilance. The need to hear about this still more and more. To be reminded to pursue it still more and more. Because the world is always seeking to devour its prey. In fact, this word more and more literally means a super abundance. To have more than enough. This, in other words, what Paul's envisioning for them is not getting by with the bare minimum. This isn't just sort of an introductory course or a a quick overview of the subject. Paul is calling on them to develop a kind of mastery in the subject, to have more teaching, more information than you could ever know what to do with. More instruction than you could ever use. To abound in this, he says. That ought to be your goal. Because Paul understood the dangers of spiritual lethargy. He understood the truth that if you're not progressing, then you're failing. And the reality is that's where so many are. That's where some of you are. You put on your spiritual front Every week when you show up here, but in your private life, you haven't learned anything or grown in any way in years. And because you're not progressing, you're facing these battles all the time. Because of the spiritual void that's in your life, you feel yourself challenged all the time. Paul says, look, you need to grow. You need to progress. You need to add to your faith. You need to relearn what we taught you from the beginning. In fact, look with me over at Proverbs. Because this is exactly what the writer of Proverbs says to his son when it comes to these issues of sexual temptation. Proverbs chapter 5, a great chapter on the dangers of the adulteress. But Paul begins it by saying, My son... Be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to to my understanding. That you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's bitter as wormwood. Paul, uh, excuse me, the writer of uh, Proverbs understood that sexual temptation is going to present itself as enjoyable pleasurable, satisfying, sweet. And so there would be a need for his son 
to constantly remind himself of these things. Look down at verse 7. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless one. The sexual temptation will destroy you. Some adulterous woman or some seductive man may flash his signals to you, promising you some, some pleasurable encounter, but you will find yourself in the jaws of death. You go down to even verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 23, where Paul again comes back to this subject. Proverbs 6, or I'm sorry, in verse 20, My son, keep your father's commandment. And forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. You just get this, this image of, of not something that's passing, something that you set in front of your eyes and then sort of set aside later on. He wants this to be attached to you. He says, when you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and a teaching is a light and the reproofs of discipline are a way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart nor, and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man take a fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So it is. So is he, I should say, who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. He pictures all of the price, the loss of health, the loss of possessions, the loss of honor that come with this kind of lifestyle. And he's pleading, do not forget. Do not stop listening. In fact, Take this teaching with you so that every morning when you wake up, it speaks to you. When you climb out of your bed in the morning, I want you to be reminded before you ever lay eyes on anyone around you. I want you to be reminded of exactly what this kind of temptation will do to you. Go down to chapter 7. Verse 1, my son, keep my words. And treasure my commandment with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman and from the adulteress with her smooth words. This is what Paul understood. He understood the culture in which these Thessalonians lived. He understood the constant barrage that they would be under. And he didn't believe for one moment that simply because they got some vibrant teaching in the first uh, months of their Christian life, that somehow that was going to carry them throughout all the rest of their days. Some of you remember days in your youth, days in your college, when the Word of God was sweet to you and you devoured it each morning, 
when scripture memory was a regular part of your life and Bible reading was how you began each day or ended each evening. Some of you remember those times whenever instruction was fresh on your heart and mind and you couldn't get enough of it. Those days perhaps have passed. You haven't bound it to your forehead or tied it around your neck. It doesn't speak to you any longer. Hear the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please the Lord, do so more and more. Press forward. Strive for a kind of mastery in sanctification. A kind of mastery in purity. Or even as we will see later on, in love. Strive to see its, un, its application and its implication in every conceivable scenario. Place yourself under the fountain of the Word of God and let it have its unending work in your life. Hear the Word of God. Hear the call to purity. Hear the high calling of pleasing God. And press into it more and more. Well, that's just one key. That's just one principle. There are others when it comes to this. As I said, that's the most basic. And yet it is indispensable to what the Lord has called us to. We'll get into the others by God's grace next week. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for this reminder. We need it. As Paul knew, as Peter knew, as... Solomon, or the writer of Proverbs, knew. Lord, we need to hear the Word of God. We need to hear it at all times. We need it to be bound to our head, to be wrapped around our neck. We need it to speak to us each morning. We need to hear it preached, filling our time, not with the enticements of the world, but with Those who would minister the Word of God to us, I pray, Father, that You would stir within us that understanding. We long to have an appetite for it, but even when we don't, Lord, give us wisdom to fill our hearts and minds with constant reminders of Your high calling of holiness. And may it have its perfect work in us that we might press forward with all sufficiency to please God in all ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.